All right, we are uh, continuing in Psalm 51. Uh, and we're continuing in Psalm 51 uh, because it's one of the great psalms in Scripture. Uh, and it is a psalm of repentance. Uh, and I'm doing this because it's, it's become part of the third series uh, on the danger of being a cultural Christian. And we talked about that. Uh, when you are a cultural Christian, effectively, it's what Bonhoeffer said about grace. It's cheap grace. And so many people fall into the camp of cheap grace. The churches are full of people like that. That's uh, grace that's not truly uh, costly, that didn't count when Jesus died on the cross. It's grace that we define ourselves. Um, and and it, it doesn't include true repentance, true heart felt repentance. You know, you're not really convicted and part of the kingdom of God unless you've repented uh, with your heart of your life and asked God to wash your sins away. And unless that action took place, you're not part of the body of Christ. Uh, and, and so you become a cultural Christian, meaning you have not really put yourself over into real Christianity. And so we know that in this Psalm, Psalm 51, David had committed gross sins. Uh, he had committed adultery, uh, and then in order to cover up the act of adultery, he committed murder. He had Bathsheba's wife sent to the very front lines in a battle and then told them to pull, pull the soldiers back so that Uriah would be by himself and effectively would be murdered. And so you, you see the terrible sin that is, and you almost say, how could somebody who is godly do this? Well, you know, it's an indictment on all of us because we walk in flesh. Never think that because you're a Christian, you've given your heart to God, that you're uh, immune. You're not immune, but you're convicted of sin. So as you walk in this world, as you walk in a sea of evil, when you may trip and fall and do something not within the will of God, God convicts you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And when you are convicted, you need to repent and ask God to forgive you again, all right? Uh, and you see that in this great psalm. Uh, and we understand that what happens when you don't repent, that what happens when you don't acknowledge your sin? Well, for one full year, after David had committed these wrongs, for one full year, uh, he did not write a single psalm. Not one psalm. Why? Because you understand sin blocks the ability for God to use you. Here's an important point to remember. So if you're saying, I want to be used by God, I want to advance the gospel of God, but somehow I'm not being used, well, the question then becomes, where is your heart? Uh, is there something that's blocking God uh, to communicate with you? And most likely, the case is that you probably need to repent and ask God to uh, wash you from that sin. So this becomes uh, a study of introspection and a need of repentance. Um, and you know that David was convicted because uh, Nathan, the prophet of Israel, came to him and told him the story about this great landholder that had all these sheep. And one day he needed to get a sheep for a sacrifice. And so instead of taking one of his sheep, he went to his neighbor who only had one sheep and took that sheep who was a pet. He was a pet of that person. And took that sheep who was a pet, slaughtered it, and used it for his, his feast. And David was outraged. How dare he do that? That man deserves to die. 
And Nathan put his bony figure, finger in the chest of David and said, you are that man. And so here's the thing. You know, we don't have the Nathans today to stick their finger in your chest, but we have God. We have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's how it operates. And God, and God uses the Holy Spirit uh, to convict us. And so this psalm is great. And we start, started it last week. I want to finish it this week. Uh, but it becomes an important thing. And in, in the first couple of verses, he pleads for mercy. He talks, have mercy upon me, O God. Uh, asking God, knowing that he was wrong. He didn't, he didn't make excuses. One of the things I love about David is he didn't say, I'm a weak man. My character is weak. I have flaws. You know, you hear a lot of people do that. You know, uh, they're caught in some sin. And, and instead of manning up and saying, I'm a sinner, they find some way to blame God or blame their birth or blame their environment. He, there was no self-justification here. Uh, with David. It was clearly that he understood that he, that he was uh, a sinner. And so in these first couple of verses, he talks about the mercy of God, uh, speaking about the mercy of God, uh, and, and begging God for his mercy and his forgiveness, uh, and asking that he blot out my transgressions, uh, and understanding how God works, that when God forgives us, uh, that when we're washed, as we are washed in the new covenant, this was the old covenant, but in the new covenant, as we're washed with the blood of Christ, your transgressions are gone. Your sin is gone. God removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. This is an important thing to understand as a Christian because, frankly, some of us have lived with the shadow of sin on our life for years, even though we are Christians. Well, so the message for you today is God has forgiven you. Now forgive yourself, all right? Now forgive yourself because if you don't forgive yourself and you have truly repented before God and you have truly bowed before the throne of God, then what you are doing is not fully accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your life. You are forgiven. I don't care what you did. I don't care what you did, and God doesn't care what you did. You are washed in the blood of Christ. And so here's the thing. I tell you this often, but it's the truth. Do you think I could get up here and teach and preach if I was stuck looking back at the things I did in my life? Are you kidding? I would never be able to do that. And I went through this in my life where, where Satan would say to me, you, oh, you, you're preaching? You? I know you. I know your character. I know what you did. I remember you in court. You. You're getting up and telling other people what it means to be a godly man. How dare you? Don't you think that went through my mind at the point when God really started to call me? It's only when I bowed before the throne and understood the real forgiveness of God. The real forgiveness of God. Forget about yesterday. Yesterday's over. Christianity is about tomorrow about the future, about walking with him. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to walk? Who are we going to speak to? So, so clearly, uh, this becomes an important thing. And in those first couple of verses, he then says, to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. What a great acknowledgement that is. Wash me, Lord. You know what I need. You know my sins, Father. I lay them out before you. Wash me because you have the authority to wash me and clean me, clean me and put my sin as far away as it is. What a powerful word that is. And to be washed not only from the outward sin, not only from the external sin, but from the internal sin, from the sins that nobody else sees, from the sins of the heart, the sins of the mind, 
sins of envy, revenge, hatred, all those things that every one of us uh, suffer because of our flesh. Wash me, Lord, because of that. Uh, and, and it's an, a, a powerful, powerful prayer. Uh, in verses 3 and 4, he makes the open confession of sin. Uh, and this is what is needed in order to be truly a Christian. You have to openly confess your sin. Now, you don't have to confess it to me. You don't have to confess it to a man, but you have to confess it to God. You have to confess it to God. You need to say to God, Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my errors. Father, forgive me for what I did. Uh, in, in verses 3 and 4 here, uh, he does that so articulately, and I'm, I'll read from my NIV uh, standard. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Oh, God, my sin is always before me. Do you understand what happens when you sin and don't repent? When you think you can sweep it in the, under the carpet, you understand that. Some things we do that only we know about, right? Those are those little closets in our life, right? We all have some little closet, some little aspect of our life that only we know about. Well, we think we can lock that up and God will never know. But yet it keeps coming up to the surface. It keeps convicting us. It keeps disturbing us. Uh, and so really, really, you need to make that kind of prayer. Uh, I acknowledge my transgression. I acknowledge my sin. Uh, and, and Lord, when you speak, you're blameless. I want to be part of your team. I want to be blameless also. I want people to know who I am. I spoke about this yesterday. Uh, about the fact that the greatest uh, evangelical effort you can make is to lead a godly life. To lead a godly life. It is your life that becomes your perfect sacrifice. Your perfect sacrifice. The walking poster of Jesus Christ. Your life. And so you need to commit yourself to leading a godly life. It's not easy. I understand that. I know it's not easy, but you have to make that effort. And so as you make that effort to lead uh, a godly life, you understand this. And so uh, this psalm really touches my heart. Really, this psalm touches my heart. Um, and, and I can understand why it was read uh, just before Sir Thomas More was executed. What a wonderful way to say, Lord, I'm coming. Father, forgive me. I acknowledge who you are. What an incredible uh, uh, psalm. And here's the thing. David was the number one guy in Israel. Nobody was higher. He was the exalted position of king. And yet, even as king, he was in agony with this sin. What does it mean? It means this, that I don't care who you are. I don't care how much authority you have, how much money you have, what position you have in this world. You are not uh, immune from the pain of sin. You are not. All right, David proved that. You are not. And so the riches and glory do not defend against that. Uh, I don't care whether you're a beggar or a monarch. Uh, it, it's all the same. Uh, and so you have to take personal responsibility before God. It's personal responsibility. Father, I only against you have sinned. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. I have done evil in this sight. 
and, and wash my heart, wash my sin. This is what it means to be a committed Christian, not a cultural Christian, a committed Christian. And so you need to understand this and, and as it becomes important. In verses 5 and 6, uh, David speaks of the, of the level of his need, how significant his need is. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What is he saying there? He's acknowledging original sin. He's acknowledging that the man, the man of flesh, is a man whose DNA is contaminated by sin. Uh, and so uh, all of us carry that DNA. That is why we, in the new covenant, require Jesus Christ. This is why we make it very clear. You can't get to heaven unless you go through Jesus Christ. All right? That is a clear uh, derivative. There is no way to get to heaven except through Jesus. I don't care how good a man you are, how ethical or moral a man you are, you're traveling on your own passport until you become a Christian, and then it's stamped with Jesus. Now you got that passport, now you're getting into heaven. It's that simple, okay? And you know that once you have committed yourself, your salvation will never be lost. God will take you there forever. Why do I say that? Because you didn't earn your salvation in the first place. You were given it. And so if you were given something by God who guarantees you it's there forever, then it's there forever. All right? Even as we stumble through life and don't exhibit the kind of Christian characteristics that we need. Uh, it's so important. Uh, and so here he says in these verses that he recognizes that God desires truth in the inward parts of our life. Yes, yes, that's what God wants. God wants you to be righteous. God wants you to have righteousness in every aspect of your life, not just on the outward part of your life, but the inward part of your life. Because if it's only on the outward part of your life, then you know what you are? You're a hypocrite. And all I know is that's exactly what the world thinks of a lot of Christians. They're hypocrites. That's why we don't draw people to Christ, because they think we're fake. They think we're phony. I told you the story that somebody told me uh, when I asked him why he doesn't come to church. He says, because the church was full of hypocrites. And I said to him, well, guess what? We got room for one more. <laughs> and that's what you need to tell people. That's right. I understand it. I'm a sinner. All right? I got warts. I'm limping along. But so are you, buddy. So are you. And we got room for you. Okay? We got room for you. That's what the church is. The church is a hospital. It's a place where you come with people who recognize their shortcomings uh, and recognize what they need and that their central need in their life is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And so this, this uh, psalm is, is so powerful. In verses 7 to 9, he speaks about the need for restoration, and he says it recognizing that the sacrifices are still valid, all right, that God had not changed that provision. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Oh, wow. Uh, there it is. Wash me with hyssop. Hyssop was used by the high priest to prepare the lamb for sacrifice, to have the lamb cleansed right before the lamb was slain. That's what hyssop was for. And so it was important. It was, it was used to apply the blood of the Passover lamb 
Uh, and that's evident if you get a chance to read that in Exodus chapter 12, you'll see that. And so in the Levitical law, it was the priests. It was the priests who used the hyssop uh, to sprinkle the purifying water. Uh, and so here he is asking God himself, God himself, to sprinkle a hyssop on his life. David didn't for a moment think he could cleanse himself. How's that? He didn't think for a moment he could work this out himself. And what happens with a lot of cultural Christians, that's not the case. You know what I mean. Well, I'll join a 10-point program. I'll join a 5-point program. I'll get up. I'll lose some weight. Uh, Maybe I'll go to India. Uh, Maybe I'll go on a mission trip. But will you actually confess your sins? Will you actually bow before the throne of God and repent? Will you do that? No, probably not. No, probably not. But you see, that wasn't the case of David. He recognized that the only way, the only way, the only way he would be forgiven is when he actually articulated his sin and asked God to wash him. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What a great line that is. You know, there's an old hymn that says that, wash me and I will be whiter than snow, whiter than snow, whiter than snow. What, a, what a, a metaphor that is for the way God wants us to be. You know, whiter than snow. And only through him, not yourself, not your works, not your charity, not your giving, none of that is going to wash you whiter than snow. Only him, only he will wash you whiter than snow. And it's, it's impossible for people that are not convicted and sold out to Jesus to understand this. This is why God has called you to be that kind of Christian, to go out in the world and to impact the world, to let them know what it's like, why we are different, and I hope we are, why we are different. Uh, and, and here he says that he recognizes that after God will wash him and cleanse him, that he will hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. What does that mean? It means the very brokenness of my spirit, Father. My spirit is broken. I am a man wounded. I am limping. I'm hurting. And the only way I can be restored is by you, Lord. By you. That's the nature of sin. That's how broken we are that we don't uh, really recognize it. In verses 10 and 11, he speaks about the restoration of heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, can you imagine? Create a clean heart. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Creating in me a clean heart. David felt that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough if God simply cleaned up the heart he had. It wasn't good enough just to clean up the existing heart, that he needed a new heart from God. All right? And this is all that comes through in the, in the New Testament uh, through Jesus, where Jesus speaks about being born again, I mean, in, in which the body is being replaced, the old heart is being replaced. It's not just cleaning up the mess that was there. It's giving us a new heart. Uh, and, and it's so powerful uh, when you recognize that. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, and so along with a new heart, he's asking for a steadfast spirit. Why is that? Because even if you have a new heart, if you don't have the steadfast spirit, you're going to fall into the same potholes as before. But if God gives you the steadfast spirit to walk in righteousness, 
to walk uh, within his kingdom. Uh, and then you will abide by his word and abide by his righteousness. Uh, because when you have that steadfast spirit, you are freed from the various rebellious desires that go all around you in the world. How about that? All of the rebellious, sinful aspects of life in this world. As you matriculate in a sea of evil, God will protect you from those very things. And then he says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, now remember, this was before Jesus came. This was before we understood that when you accepted Christ, you were filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed forever and would not lose your salvation. Well, this, this was a, a, a recognition then that God could, in fact, during that old covenant day, remove his Holy Spirit. What did he do with Saul? Remember? What did he do with Saul? He removed the Spirit of God on Saul. He took it from him because he wasn't worthy, because he sinned and he didn't confess. He didn't repent. David knew that. David saw that. David remembered what Saul was. And so David was wary of that. And so David didn't want a God who cleansed him yet remained distant. What a beautiful man. So even in this aspect of asking to be forgiven, to be washed, all right, to have a new heart, to be given a steadfast spirit, his fear was that God might do that, but that God would remain distant from him. He couldn't be distant from him, all right? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He knew, he knew what had happened with Saul uh, and how Saul's spirit had departed from from uh, so, uh, God's spirit had departed from, from uh, Saul, uh, an important recognition. Uh, and so we know that these issues that I'm talking about here, about the Holy Spirit leaving, don't fit the believer under the new covenant. All right? God doesn't remove the Holy Spirit from the new covenant. When you've truly accepted Christ, when you've given him your heart, you are saved. I believe in eternal security. I believe that God holds you in the palm of his hand when you are saved. That nothing, no force, no evil will be able to pry you out of the hand of God. Can I get an amen on that? That is why, that is why you can live a triumphant Christian life. You understand this? It's only when I truly understood eternal security. And I got that really when I was in my 50s. When I truly understood what it meant. It meant that you didn't deserve salvation. He gave it to you. He put you in his hand. And he closed his hand around you. And nothing, no power, no principality would ever take you out of his hand. Even as you failed. Because he knew you would fail. But he knew that you had made that commitment where your heart was. And so he closes your hand around you. And that is why you can live a triumphant Christian life. Why? Because it means this. Yes, I failed yesterday. Yeah, I'm probably going to fall today. And I'm probably going to fall tomorrow. But he knows me. He knows my heart. I'll ask, for, I'll ask for repentance. I'll ask to be washed and I will remain in his hand and I can stand and speak to people because I'm still in his hand and I will be in his hand until the day they put dirt on me. Amen? Amen. Let's understand that. That's an important point to understand. And so in verses 12 and 13, he talks about restoration of the joy of salvation. This is important that we understand this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors 
your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. This blows my mind. I've talked to one of our brothers about this very verse. This verse blows my mind. This is your God, folks. Your God loves you so much that when you ask for forgiveness and he forgives you, he then puts you back in a position of leadership. How about going out and speaking to other sinners? How about going out and speaking about who I am? Can you imagine? You would never do this if you ran a company. Nobody in earth would ever do this in our world. You would never put people that have fallen in positions of leadership. But you see here, he's asking God to put him back in a position where he can speak to transgressors. He can speak to sinners. Why? Because he knows what it's like to sin. And he knows what it's like to be saved. And I'm so proud of people that are in this group who are involved in various 10-point programs, uh, in, in various programs that restore people and restore men, these great Christian uh, programs. I'm so proud of you that you're doing it because you are following in the steps of David, just as David has asked this here uh, and, and, and made this incredible, incredible request. Uh, I will teach transgressions. Can you imagine that? In the dark days, in the dark days uh, before the confession of sin, and we know that about a year went by. We don't truly understand this. We don't know at what point Nathan made the, the, uh, a, a meeting with David, but there was about a year that went by. No Psalms are written. That I'm sure he was not able to teach. He was not able to teach. He was not able to speak to people uh, in, uh, in any way. Uh, and, and so he had a tremendous sense of guilt, and even if he attempted to do that, uh, he saw no blessing in his work. You understand what that means? It means this. Even if you attempt to reach out and continue to do what you think is God's will, but you haven't repented, your work will not be blessed. It's the work of man. <laughs> the work of man. And I know a lot about the work of man. All right, I told you that when I started with, with Tom Lofgren, this Bible study 12 years ago, we did it in, in, in the house in Port Royal, and I thought, well, this is good. If this is the call on my life, I know some of you have heard it, I will print up 250 postcards. We'll put it in every mailbox in, in, in Port Royal, 250, and not one person came. Why? Was it God's will that I do the Bible study? Yes. But whose Bible study was it? Was it John Garippus or was it his? And I had to recognize, no, God, it's yours. This is not about me putting, putting uh, postcards in mailbox. And I had the pleasure uh, one, one day uh, to be at a, at a uh, new member meeting, uh, and I'm going to use his name with our brother Ralph Steyer, and his wife heard me say that I had a Bible study, and she said to Ralph, and it's absolutely true, Ralph, did you hear what he just said? He's got a Bible study. You know how you've always looked for a Bible study? He said, you should come. Ralph said, where is it? I told him, and Ralph never, ever missed another day. That's the hand of God. You understand it? That's how God works. He didn't need an, uh, an, an invitation printed on cardboard. He needed an invitation in his heart, convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's how God works, all right? Not you not your imagination, not your ideas, not your marketing ideas. All of that is trash before the throne of God. What is the will of God? 
We bow before the will of God. It's like the church that I started, the Naples gathering, the same thing. Do you think I sat there for years and determined, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, let's get a marketing plan? No, no. Within two weeks of deciding we had to do it, 400 people showed up. 400 people showed up. What is that about? It's the will of God. You understand? That's how God works, folks. That's what God is about. And so you understand that, that if you're outside of God's will, if you're not repenting, if you're not having your, your body washed by God, then these blessings don't matriculate down to you. All right? You want to be used by God. You want to have a life that, that, that blesses others. This is what you have to do. Look at verses 14 to 17. He talks there about the restoration of praise. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Um, And then he, he goes on to say, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Well, how about that? Where will you hear those verses again? You're going to hear them in the New Testament, and you're going to hear Jesus say it. All right? Because there it is. There's the essence that we understood in the New Covenant, that, uh, that, that the sacrifice of God is really a broken spirit. It's no more a lamb. It's no more a lamb. It's the brokenness of our hearts. And he recognized that. And by the way, he says there uh, his blood guilt. You see how he was still uh, uh, really bending over in guilt Uh, because of the murder of Uriah? Of course he was. He murdered somebody. You think you can walk away from that? And I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that even after this day, even after God cleansed him and washed him, I'm sure there were days when when he looked back with regret, even though he knew he was forgiven, and said, oh, I did a terrible thing. I did a terrible thing. And you know what? He's forgiven. But God still reminds us of our weaknesses. He reminds us of our weaknesses. Uh, And that's okay. Because you know what? We need to be reminded of our weaknesses. Restore to me the joy, the joy of salvation. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Uh, and, And so the guilt of bloodshed. He was deeply aware of the sin of murder. He was deeply aware of what he did. Uh, and though he makes no specific reference here uh, to his adultery, uh, he, uh, he obviously recognized that that was also part of his great sin. Um, and so clearly we see that. Uh, and he says that my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. David knew that with his guilt dealt with before God, once God had taken care of the guilt, that he would be able to sing aloud that his mouth would show forth his praise. He would be able to go back and write more psalms. And he did. And his spirit went out and spoke to people that needed to hear it. God, continue to do it. And so here he understood that you desire sacrifice. You desire sacrifice, and the sacrifice is my heart. Not a lamb. Not some animal but the brokenness of my internal spirit as I bow before you. Uh, And that's truly what God looks for, a broken spirit. Uh, Jesus spoke about this as well in a contrite heart, uh, and that becomes important uh, as we understand it. This is opposed to a hard heart, all right, Uh, or a stony heart, about which we read often, meaning what? That the human experience is a hard heart. 
meaning it doesn't recognize sin. It doesn't recognize the need for compassion. It doesn't recognize the need for kindness. That's, that's what the hard human heart is all about. It's about me, 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 me. What can I do for myself? How can I take care of myself? How can I lift myself up? I don't care about anybody else. I care about me. That's the human heart. That's the human experience. And yet God, God is speaking powerfully uh, about the fact that that's not the way God wants us to live. Uh, and, and he says even here in terms of these, these sacrifices, these, oh God, you will not despise. I know that you won't despise those animal sacrifices, but I know that you really want a, a broken heart, a contrite heart. And so in verses 18 to 19, he speaks now about the restoration uh, of good in the kingdom. And he says there, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, that bulls will be offered on your altar. What does that mean, that he's speaking here about the good that will come to Jerusalem? Well, what it means is that he recognized that even as he was sinful, even as he was under sin, as the leader of that country, it, it percolated down to the people of that country as well, that God would not bless Israel during that period of time because he was the leader of Israel, all right? And so uh, uh, God is making that very uh, clear. Not only did he fail uh, as a man, he failed as a father, he failed as a husband, and he failed as a king. You understand how our failures matriculate into various areas of our life? You don't just wall yourself off and say, well, this little sin just relates to me personally. It doesn't affect my family. Nonsense. Nonsense. Do you think if you get involved in pornography, then you think it's because it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're telling your wife you have to do some computer work, right? And you think it doesn't affect your relationship with her? Well, you know differently. You never can look at her the same if that's what you're doing because evil has come into your heart. It's infected your mind. You have to stop it. You have to ask God to purge that thought, to wash that, to shut it down because it affects you as a husband. It affects you as a father. And it affects you in the case of David even as king of Israel. God would not bless Israel, would not bless his, his royal position while this was going on. Uh, and so, yes, you could still offer bulls on the sacrifice. You could still go forward with animal sacrifice. But unless your heart is taken care of, unless you're broken and ask God to wash you and take away this sin, none of those sacrifices would amount to a hill of beans. And this is important. And this is what God is saying. And so God is speaking to us today as men of God. That's why I wanted to focus on this psalm. I wanted you to be aware of what God looks for in us as we walk with him. What it means to be a committed Christian. What it means when you're instead a cultural Christian. How there is a gulf, an enormous gulf, a differential between being fully committed and non-committed. To be being uh, supposedly religious as opposed to being convicted of, with Jesus Christ. God does not care about your religion. All right? God does not care about your religion. Religiosity is meaningless, meaningless 
to God. But what's really important, what's really important is that God touches your heart. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. All right. And I've proven that you can preach even while cell phones go off. Let's bow before the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for what you've done for us. I thank you, Father, for these men that you bring them here. I ask you that this message continue to resonate in their heart and bring them back in two weeks to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.